This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Fans on the Run, the podcast that takes a sad song and doesn't really do anything with it. Um, it, It's been a while since I've recorded an episode. I tend to say that every every show because it is i i've been taking more and more time in between shows to try and give you the most show possible i i'm not even sure what that statement means so i'm just going to avoid any further senile ramblings uh my guest today is the author of a, a really fascinating new Beatle book. He's written a bunch of other books, like um, Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon, and the the one we're probably going to be talking about the most today, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. Please welcome James Campion. Welcome to Fans on the Run. Ethan, it's a pleasure to be on. And if you're having senior ramblings, I think I will up you one since I'm much, much older than you. So okay, then audience, you're in for a treat. <laughs> well said. How so are how, you? How, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm great. I've You beat me to it. I was going to ask you how you're doing. I'm fine. I'm, I'm talking Beatles. I'm promoting a new book coming out on June 1st, and, and it's always an exciting but nerve-wracking anxiety time for authors. So it's always cool to get on and talk about it because I say it all the time. Writing is a very isolating art form. If it is, I like to call it a craft. And um, so, you know, unlike musicians who write songs, they record and then they go out and they can play it and people go, yay or nay, you know, you never know. So it's always nice to be on with people who are fans of the particular work like yourself, uh, who take time to read it and, and have some questions and I get to rap about it. So I'm good. Thank you. Well, you, out of all the Beatles podcasts, you have chosen one of them to appear on today. <laughs> I certainly have. I am one of the Beatles podcasts. And there are so many. Yes, but oh, I'm enjoying. You don't have to remind me about my competition. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. But when I wrote Accidentally Like a Martyr, everybody asked me, first question was, why Warren Zevon? Because you know, not, not a lot of people know Warren. And I came up with this, a pat answer, which was kind of a wise-ass thing. But I, I kept saying, because there's enough damn Beatle books. So what did I do? I, I turned around and, and I wrote one. If you can't beat them, join them, I guess. <laughs> well said, my friend. Although, why would anyone be mad about a book about Warren Zevon? Not that they were mad. I think I, I, I understood it. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> I, I, don't know much, is, I don't know much about him, but from what I do answer. know, he's, a, he's an incredibly fascinating man. Yes, and a, and a, and a wonderful singer-songwriter. And I felt that people of your generation or other generations uh, should know about him. Um, that's why I wrote it. Uh, there weren't any. Uh, you know, his wife, Crystal, did did an oral biography a few years earlier, and I got to know Crystal well and the whole Zevon family, and they helped me out with the book. And um, But there weren't any. Now there's been a couple since. But I thought, you know, it's the kind of thing where there's enough Beatles or Stones books or, you know, Michael Jackson or whatever. Um, how about how about we, we, we give this guy a little time, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, and really a lot of fun to do that book. But he's a darker character a much darker character than Paul McCartney. So it was a lot more fun living in Paul's head than it was in Warren's for sure. 
Now that we're uh, on the subject of non-Beatles music, uh, what what was the last album you listened to? Hmm. Last vinyl album or, or something any, on Spotify? Any album. Okay, I'll any give you Spotify. that. I got two, I got two answers. I okay, answers I'll, I'll, I'll accept two answers. Thank you. Uh, so the last vinyl album I listened to is last weekend. I listened to Michaela Davis and the Southern Stars new record, which is a recording from the Relic Sessions. Uh, it's a one, she's, if you don't know Michaela's work, you should. She's a wonderful singer-songwriter who plays the harp. The harp is the main interest in, uh, instrument in the band. And uh, the Southern Star is a fantastic band. They have this kind of Grateful Dead jammy vibe that's cool. I don't want to say it specifically. They do love the dead. They do cover a dead song in that in those sessions, which is on the album. But uh, Mikhail is a, a beautiful young woman and person. And uh, I've gotten to know her over the last couple of years. And um, so her new record is, is, is just great. You should check her out. Michaela Davis and the Southern Star. And it turns out two of the members in that band are from my wife's town of Costantia, New York. And really? you could throw a baseball through Costantia, New York. The chances that these two people I would meet out in my music journalism romping would somehow be that connected. I mean, they knew the house that my my wife grew up in because she grew up in this octagon house. So it's very famous <laughs> up there. Anyway, it's a little town uh, north of Syracuse, New York. The last album I listened to on Spotify was the Stone, the new mix of the the new release of the Rolling Stones playing at the Macambo Club in 1977, which I'm here to report I'm very disappointed in. Oh, because it's it's just apologies for the claps. Well, it's yeah, you're right exactly. It's it, just I got excited because it's uh, you know I am Canadian. I live not too far from Toronto. Uh, the El Macombo holds a very special place in my heart. And it should. It's a wonderful place. And uh, that is a seminal live record that the Stones played, uh, recorded when Keith couldn't leave Canada when he was busted up there in the late 70s. So they had they played these shows to record. And the, the third side of an album called Love You Live that came out uh, that year has a couple of songs from it. So for Stones fans like myself, we were just like, I, I got to hear the whole thing. And there were bootlegs over the years. But when I heard there was going to be an official release this year, but then I started hearing the the recording. The, what they did was they they just saturated it in, uh. in reverb. So it doesn't have that clean club, raw, Stonesy thing I love that was on the original mixes for Love You Live. But I must admit, when I listened to the whole thing, which I gave it a shot, wonderful versions of a lot of songs in there and and them playing at that that era of their career in front of a small audience is fantastic you you, you tend to forget about the echo the echo becomes part of it but those are the last two records that i like what was the last one you listened to actually one more thing i think my uncle yeah, was actually at the the show come on come on i'm that i swear to god that is so cool. Like I, I had been told stories as a kid. Yeah, the Stones uh, used to warm up in Toronto, and they they did yes. a gig at the El Macombo as the Cockroaches. I can't remember which one of my uncles went, but it was one of them. Well, you got to find him and sit yourself right down next to him and have him tell you the story. I mean, I have always, I always wanted to talk to somebody who was in that building. There's only, I think it only holds about 75 or 100 people comfortably. Yeah. Uh, there were some critics there and some writers uh, and the Stones certainly 
Uh, it's it's really a, a, a legendary show and they play their ass off. They're cooking for sure. It's just that I just, I was very disappointed after 30 years of waiting for this thing or more. It was underwhelming. It was not the performance. Trust me, they kick it. But it's just, I don't know why they put all that reverb. If you just listen to it cold, like I did when they released on Spotify, like one track, <laughs> it sounds like they could be playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah, why? Oh, the Maple Leaf Gardens, if you want to. Do you still call it the Maple Leaf Gardens there in Toronto? Uh, the Maple Leaf Gardens don't exist anymore. Oh, what, what do you play at? What, what's, where do the Maple Leafs play now? Uh, the Maple no. Leafs play at, uh, the the technical name is the Scotiabank uh, oh, Arena. Oh, it's one of those. Yeah, yeah. So. we all call it the Air Canada Center. Okay, so that, that's where the Stones would probably play today if they played. And, you know. Actually, 20, last 000, time they 60, played, they 000. played at a giant a festival in a farmer's field in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. Oh. And uh, yeah, I got, we got stuck in the parking lot afterwards for about five hours. That sounds like a Stones experience. I've had yeah. many of those. Yes. And to answer your question, the last album I listened to was, um, I think it was this year's model by Elvis Costello and the oh, attractions. It's brilliant. The first attractions album. Yeah. Who, who, by the way, also played the Elma Combo Club and they recorded it and it's a wonderful... I, I have that record. It's a great record. Yep. Oh, God. Speaking of fake reverb, let's go back to the Beatles. <laughs> I thought you were going to use Elvis Costello because he wrote songs with Paul in the late 80s, but you went with that. Okay. Yeah. I like it, though. I like it. See, I, I'm a man of mystery. You never know which segue I'm going to take. <laughs> So, right, James, so, we go back to yes, the beginning. Sir. How did you first discover the Beatles? Uh, good question. Well, when I first discovered this song I wrote about, Hey Jude, it was prior to my knowing about the Beatles. I must have heard it somewhere because as I write about in the book, I used to sing myself to sleep with the Nana's part when I was like five or six years old. So I uh, probably heard it on the AM radio in my dad's car or maybe, you know, it could have been anywhere. It was all over the joint that summer. So, but I definitely didn't know who the hell the Beatles were. I think sometime in the early seventies, I remember the first Beatle record I got, I asked my parents for the blue album. So I must have known I liked the latter Beatles stuff. If you don't know, the Red and Blue albums came out in the early 70s. They were the first compilation, uh, double album compilations for the next generation, which would have been me. I'm the first not quite official boomer. compilations. Yeah, that's very true. Very well said. And um, you know, I'm not quite boomer, not quite X. So I'm somewhere on the, the cusp of that. And so for that generation, for all of us, I was would have been 10, 11 years old when that came out. I, I already had an idea that I love the latter Beatles stuff because the second, I think the blue album goes from like revolve, late revolve 66 through or 67 through it's 70. 1967 to 1970. Okay. So 60. So the first one's 62 to 66 then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, but my parents must've misheard me and got me the red album, which was a real revelation for me. And I'm glad they did because I was able to listen to the Beatles going all the way back to love me do. And that gave me a good foundation. And then I read the first piece I ever read about the Beatles where I really got to realize their immense impact was uh, my now friend Grail Marcus's uh, piece for the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, which is the first book I ever got about rock and roll. And he, he's, the, he's the one that was tapped to write the essay. And 
and it drew me immediately into finding everything else I could about the Beatles. This would have been probably my sophomore or junior year of high school. So it'd have been a couple of years after I got the Red Album. But I, I'm going to say the very early 70s. I remember hearing songs by Ringo and Paul McCartney before the Beatles songs became more ubiquitous in my life. I remember, you know, I had the Band on the Run 45. I remember Ringo's album with, you know, like the No No song, or he had like You're 16 and you know, I remember my sweet yeah. lords. So, so that's where I kind of that's where I kind of became a music fan was when those songs were big. Yeah. So, uh, apart from the Red Album, what was your f- first proper Beatles album? <laughs> it's not really proper, is it? Um, that's a great question. I'm trying to remember. I'm not good with these things. I do know the first album that I ever owned was Maybe Tomorrow by the Jackson 5. My dad got it for me because I used to watch the Jackson 5 cartoon when I was a kid. This would have been late 60s. Um, The first Beatle album I purchased, and I would have purchased that one, was probably in the just prior maybe to my high school years, 75, 76. At that time, I was more into hard rock, like Aerosmith and Kiss and that kind of stuff. and, and also pop, pop quiz. Always, What's your favorite uh, Kiss album? Uh, well, it's Destroyer. I spent. I, I if uh, that's a great. Thank you for me, helping me plug. I wrote it my first book for Backbeat Books, which this book is published on, is about the Kiss album Destroyer. It's called Shouted Out Loud, the making of, of uh, Destroyer. Or excuse me, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon. So, destroy. I spent three years of my life writing about Destroyer, if you can believe it. So I'm going to say Destroyer. Do you have a favorite Kiss album? Um, yes. I could say Destroyer, or I could be a slight contrarian and say uh, Creatures of the Night. All right. I know a lot of KISS fans would agree with you. I know that I I was blown away by Destroyer when I got it, uh, and but it was a very controversial album for KISS fans. It's, it's got it, that weird kind of Bob Ezrin stuff going on in there. It's you know? really polished. Yeah. But I, I like it. Yes, it's a very, very cool album. And Actually, behind to it, be I mean. like a real smart ass, I could have just said uh, side four of Alive 2. <laughs> yes, that would have made you an official member of the Kiss Army. Um, another thing I like, I love the side four of, of Kiss Alive 2, which if Kiss fans know, and we're now putting all the Beatle fans to sleep, uh, is a studio, uh, studio recordings that because they only had three sides of live material to choose from was was a big deal um so first beetle album i want to say like sergeant peppers or something like that uh magical mystery tour something like that because again i was very fascinated by the latter beetle stuff i didn't get revolver until i was in college so i mean i'd heard parts of it but yeah no yeah no i came to the beatles slowly because you know we heard the Beatles over and over and over again it never occurred to us to get all the because between the the compilation albums and on the radio and the Beatles were just everywhere so uh, I was more interested in getting you know Elvis Costello albums or Joe Jackson albums or you know uh, you know that kind of thing um what's your favorite Elvis Costello album oh uh King of America King of America is a masterpiece uh, produced by the great T-Bone Burnett. There's not a bad song on that record. I, I highly recommend every human being when they're done listening to this, including you, Ethan, put it on. It's fabulous. I, I'm ashamed to say I haven't really ventured much um, 
in terms of Elvis Costello and the attractions past maybe 1984. Oh, you just missed it because this came out in, it came out in 85 or 86, I think. And it, it was funny because he went by Declan McManus for the album, uh, you know, for fun. It was the first album he had done, I think. I think. I think it's after. Uh, is it after? It's definitely after the. What's the one that's got the string arrangements on it? Um, Imperial Bedroom, which is the last time I saw him play live, actually, was the, touring that album. Uh, so I think he they, they started to splinter a little bit, him and the attraction. So it's a, it's a complete... I think I may be biased because I'm just... I'm a big Nick Lowe fan. Oh, yeah. Nick is great. Yep. Yeah, he's all over... He, listen... Uh, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, that whole that that whole period. Of, yeah, that uh, whole English pile of rocks. Ah, very good. Boom, boom. Well done. Well done. I'll be here all week. So yeah, so that's it. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I'm gonna go with that. And so uh, we make our way to Hey Jude, the song. What about Hey Jude stuck out to you right away? Well, the Nanas when I was a kid, like I said, I always remembered that. And I still love it to this day. I think it's my favorite sing-along in any song. And uh, I think if you've been listening to us for the last 20 minutes, you know that we listen to a lot of songs. So for me to say that is a pretty high praise. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's the best Beatles song. I love it. It's my favorite Beatles song. Now, I love A Day in the Life and I Want to Hold Your Hand and uh, so many other great Beatle um, songs and Beatle albums, certainly, because they invented really the rock album. But I still always saw the Beatles. And maybe it's because of my getting the Red Album when I was a kid. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I think that I think of the Beatles first as a singles band, making those great hits and having them dominate the charts, the top five songs in America in April of 1964, Beatles songs. Think about that. The top five songs on the Billboard charts, all Beatles songs. It's wild. I mean, no, how, no matter how big Taylor Swift is or Beyonce, I, I don't think anybody can fathom five, the top five songs in America at that time. And, and we all know it's because, you know, American capital didn't accept the Beatles for no. that first year. So they had all those older songs to choose from when they came over and uh, everybody Ooh, put them out. Give me a, another chance to do some smug national pride. Capital Canada did get the Beatles first. They, yes, that is true. Yes. And uh, Canada trumped America on that one for sure. I mean, this was not, they, they were not uh, accepted immediately. Uh, and it, it took Beatlemania and the complete insanity that was going on. And certainly the record sales were going on in 1963 in England for America to get on board. But yeah, I mean, um, having said all of that, Hey Jude still remains my favorite song. And, and, and after spending a year during the quarantine, it's my quarantine project, this book. Uh, you know, researching the song, interviewing so many great um, uh, Beatles scholars and writers and songwriters of different generations and professors of all dis different disciplines like sociology, psychology, philosophy, musicology, you know, all these things, all these voices really helped me to realize why that song is so brilliant and has moved me and continues to move me today yeah why does it move you it's a beautiful beautiful song with a wonderful sentiment in the book i call it comfort and unity the comfort part is the hey jude don't 
don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. You know, uh, don't carry the pain. Don't carry the world on your shoulders. I think is a fantastic message. Song with great empathy by an excellent empathetic songwriter. And the Nanas, again, I come back to it. Where the band kicks in there, I could feel the joy of the Beatles in that song. I could feel the joy and power and primacy of what the Beatles meant to that generation, what the Beatles meant to pop music and rock music. And as my my good friend Rob uh, Sheffield from Rolling Stone says in my book, the Beatles didn't happen. They're still happening. I feel that when I hear Hey Jude. And the fact that Paul's out there right now as we speak, touring and playing Hey Jude to thousands and thousands of people singing along. And I know sometimes it becomes trite and I t- it tends to become maudlin in ways and Paul can push us a little bit in that direction. But I think with Hey Jude, I forgive him all that. I think I think it's a culmination of everything the Beatles did, did well and what Paul does well as a songwriter, as a singer, because he's singing his ass off on that song and everything else in between, really. Where do you think uh, the importance of Hey Jude uh, sits within the Beatles story? I think it's right up there. Uh, one thing I was shocked to learn, Ethan, about this song when I started is that it was the longest running number one song in America that the Beatles ever did. Nine weeks at number one, 19 weeks all overall. It was number and one it was the longest. The longest running we, song. Right. The longest running song in two different ways. Yes, that's right. What's the second way? The first way is it's Length. just a long single. Oh, right. <laughs> and also being on the charts. Thank you. I'm sorry. I missed that. Yes. The longest in length up until um, American Pie, which doesn't really count because it was on two sides and now all too well. Uh, speaking of Taylor Swift, yeah. her 10 minute version went to number one. But again, a digital copy, not a 45. Yeah. But give it up to her. Uh, longest running number one song ever in, in running length, as you mentioned. Uh, and that it was number one in more countries than any other Beatles song before. Uh, and I think here's one for you. I think it was Devin McKinney, the great uh, author of Circles, uh, The Beatles and Their Generation, a great book. He told me that, think about it for a minute. This is the last time all four Beatles went in, like they did for Love Me Do, six years earlier, to record a single, just a single together, uh, because the Ballad of John and Yoko, who that is a post, that, that, that's another number one single that came out afterwards, was just Paul and John. We all know that you know Paul and John ran in and recorded it, it like on the spur of the moment, became a big hit. And of course, the, the the singles that came off of Abbey Road and Let It Be, like Come Together or Let It Be Itself, were on albums. So this is the last time the Beatles walk into a studio together and record a single together. And so when that na 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 fades out, I kind of feel that that is in a way the 60s fading out, yeah. the Beatles' influence on the culture fading out. The, the end of the thing. Beatles' era. Yeah. The end of this, the era of the single. Yeah, that the Beatles really helped to stomp out, ironically. And also, you know, it brings back the, the way the Beatles started out because the Beatles are the ones that took everyone in that direction of the avant-garde, right? The strings, the background, backwards tracks. You made the joke about Echo uh, earlier um, or Reverb. Uh, you know, all the, 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 the sitars, the, the weird things that the Beatles brought into their songs, the psychedelic era that was getting a little bit too much by the end of 67, early 68. The band up in Saugerties, they record, you know, the, the, the basement tapes that start to leak out. They record their and release their first album, Music from Bing Pink. Bob Dylan strips it back down again for uh, his record, uh, John Wesley Harding. So the Beatles hear that. 
And, when and, and you have the whole, you know, great rock and roll revival thing, right, 68. Yes, right. The Chuck Berries and right. They're doing those in those British tours. So, yeah. So, so the Beatles are, it's this full circle for them. It is, it, I think it is the sonic end of an era, really. Even though the Beatles still had two more years. And great years, by the way. But but years, I think, that weren't always camaraderie filled. There is a moment when, and I joke about this throughout the book, what Mick Jagger always called the four-headed monster, was sort of splitting in different directions. We know the stories. We know the Maharishi, the death of Brian Epstein, the drug problems for John, Yoko, Linda, George's, you know, um, fascination and deep-seated belief in uh, Hinduism and and his um, Eastern music, Ringo doing music uh, movies all by himself. So they're, they're, they're not quite the Beatles the way we knew them then, but they still kind of were with Hey Jude. I think the coming of the White Album and that whole joke about four, you know, three backup bands for every member, uh, you know, that'll come out in November of 68. That is to me, the final leg of the Beatles. And even though Abbey Road and they all went back in saying, let's make a record like we did in the old days because the get back sessions were so, uh, you know, fractured and weird. And even though, you know, Peter Jackson's brilliant six part series uh, was enough for me to not, it wasn't enough of a revisionist, but we know that the Beatles were on their last legs then because they broke up and because their last record came out when they broke up. So yeah, the K Judas is, it really is a, a final stamp on that, the power and camaraderie. So where do you think Hey Jude stands in the the legacy of the Beatles? Again, right at the top. And I'm not just saying this because I spent a year of my life writing about it. I just think that it is the legacy of the Beatles. Like I said, I think it has all the musical styles that made them great in it. It's an homage to doo-wop, it's an homage to blues, it's an homage to country pop, it's an homage certainly to rock and roll, to gospel, the Beatles' fascination and love, adoration, and also reflection of Americana, of American music, which inspired them, Elvis, Chuck Berry, we talked about it before, the doo-wop, the Del Vikings, and um, all that stuff from the late 50s, early 60s. And it's got the band doing all the stuff they do well. Ringo's fantastic on it. John's all in. Um, it's just a it's a beautifully crafted song by truly great crafted songwriters. And, you know, Paul McCartney is, as I write about in my book, an indisputed, statistically successful songwriter in the, in the Guinness Book of World Records. And this is, you know, one of his great songs. John, to the day he died, and, and John could be very bitchy when it came to Paul and of course terribly terribly um, mocking of him in the early 70s Paul's best work lyrically it's fantastic all the things that that John gave Paul guff for he turned was blown away by it understands the import of it. So I think it's right up there. I think it, it, I'm glad you used that word legacy because I think it does reflect the Beatles' true legacy, which is they touched so many people because they, they really figured out a way to infuse so many different styles into their work. Really, uh, more, maybe more than any other group. 
Why do you think the Beatles still matter? Well, if you want to be cynical about it, <laughs> it's because they, they're, they're marketed beautifully. Uh, whether it's, you know, what they did in the 90s, the resurgence from the anthology, anthology series, uh, whether it's because um, they worked that deal out with Apple, they re-released all their CDs in the late 80s, which was a big rollout. They did the Mono series a few years back, which was a big rollout. They've done it as well as anybody, these legacy releases. Speaking of yeah. legacy, whether it's Let It Be This Year or in 2018, the Beatles are, the the gold um, standard for the for the catalog reissue yeah yeah and now paul's doing it they're doing it with john's work so and rightfully so it, it deserves it but if you want to be cynical they're just really good at marketing it and keeping themselves uh, front and center and they've influenced these other bands to do it whether it's metallica the stones prince uh the the the, the princess state now is doing a fantastic job with his catalog and finding all those those songs from the vault um so there's that. The but Stone, also I, think because, I have to say, I have to get this off my chest. Yes. The Stones camp yeah. has done, a, a, to put it delicately, not great. They haven't been great. Oh, no, I agree. Excuse me. I, I just sometimes wonder with the Stones is who's running that show. I think the Beatles allow the Apple people to run it. I know Ringo and Paul have to sign off on it. And of course, uh, the Harrison and uh, Yoko Ono, you know, the Harrison family and Yoko, of course. So, uh, but I just think that the, the Beatles, you know, the Apple's got their shit together and I don't think the Stones do. Well, the, the Stones is split between, you know, two companies. The, the Beatles may be a bit more of a shit show if, uh, you know, Apple Corps controlled half and like, Warner Brothers controlled half. Right, that's a good point. The, the Stones have point. to deal with De uh, Abco, and who have done yeah. the worst job. Terrible. Yeah. Well, that's that's our good friend Klein who helped break up the Beatles, so we won't go there. But uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, listen to the Beatles songs. As Paul says one of the things I quote at the end of the the book. And, and I'm and let me find it because I think it's a, it's it's apt to answer your questions more apt than me mentioning it, um, and it's nice to actually have a book that I can refer to. Um, let me see what Paul says in. Uh, oh yes, he says. He told Barry Miles in 1997 for his great many years from now, which I quote in the book, looking back on all the Beatles work, I'm very glad that most of it was positive and has been a positive force. I always find it very fortunate that most of our songs were to do with peace and love and encourage people to do better and have a better life. When you come to do these songs in places like the stadium in Santiago where all the dissidents were rounded up, I'm very glad to have these songs because they're such symbols of optimism and hopefulness. And I think that, that Hey Jude, once again, is the culmination of that, <laughs> you know. Now, um, you've done what I, I don't think any other Beatle author has done. Uh, I could be wrong. My memory is not the greatest. Um, write about a single song and write such a captivating book about just one song. What did the, the research process look like for this book? Um, I don't believe there is. So thank you. There's only about nine so uh, books written about one song. I read them all. So I was prepared. Um, 
I think not not to get ideas, but that of course you can't help, but to just not repeat what what someone else did, get angles that were different. So the research was was that it was um, reading or rereading in many cases uh, dozens of Beatles biographies or, or books. Um, some by people I know personally, some by people I don't know, but I got to know writing the book or that I revere. Um, you know, trying to find those those professors. I wanted to have, that was my original pitch to Backbeat Books, was I need to, I want to talk to other, I don't want it to be my voice. I want it to be the voice of other people and I'll be the ringleader. I'll do what you're doing with me right now. I'll ask them all the questions, jot it all down, tape them all and make sure I could tell the story of why this song psychologically affects us, how it affected society, how how great a craftsman Paul is in writing songs, how wonderful a band the Beatles really were live, all those things. So uh, it was, it was um, a lot of work but just as much work as any of my other books that I've, I've done. I, I think the research is really where I feel the most comfortable, Ethan. I, I don't, I don't, I, I see myself as equal parts sort of amateur, I guess not amateur because I am getting paid for it, but uh, historian in a way. Uh, and also a writer in a sense, we're telling the story, taking all these voices. It's not an oral biography. My writing is in it, but I wanted the voices to tell the story. I wanted, I wanted the reader to learn more about why this song, specifically by what, but why music and songs affect us positively, negatively, or whatever, and how they affect a generation, whether whatever race you are, gender, sexual proclivity, age, you know, how does these songs continue to work? How does Hey Jude work? And to a book's like a chair with everyone. If you'll, uh, let the audience in, even if they haven't read it yet. What is one of the most interesting, or what is uh, one of the most interesting pieces of information that you found researching uh, the story of Hey Jude? Ooh, I got to think about that more because I believe I'm doing a book signing in Jersey City tonight. And uh, the woman that's asking me the questions, actually, I should give props. The woman that's asking me the questions is my assistant, Jessica, who's doing a fantastic job contacting all you guys and making sure I get on these podcasts. Shout everything. out to Jessica. She runs my wife, basically. So my professional life, for sure. Uh, so thank you, Jess. Um, she's going to be asking me these questions that the, the bookstore wanted someone up there with me. And she sent me a list of the questions. And one of them is that. And, I, and I'm trying to think, I mean... The one that I found funny, which I always kind of knew about, and I read somewhere in passing, but I did some real deep research, is the fact that John screams fucking hell in the song, and it's clearly in there, and it's it's amazing that a song of this magnitude that's been around forever, that people are like, when they hear it, they can't unhear it, and I get that, absolutely get that. Um, the fact that Paul based his melody on a 1917 liturgical piece um, by a man by the name of, um, I don't want to get the name wrong, so I have to, because I don't have my book right in front of me, John Nicholson, Ireland, and that the bridge part is an homage to the Drifters, which was brought up by Walter Everett, the great uh, Beatles scholar, and we discussed it and dove deeply into it. And then finally for me, Ethan, I think it's the, the fact, and I never read this to the extent that I dive into it in my book, that I feel like every Beatles song has come alive for me now because I realized in some way, it's John and Paul, specifically the John Paul compositions, certainly, that John and Paul 
were writing subconsciously about the death of their mothers, this loss of maternal affection, this loss of very strong influential women in their lives, their very young lives, and how immediately upon their deaths, they find the music that will save them and they become the biggest stars in the world because of it. Are are you hinting at some sort of... uh... Freudian aspect. It's not really, yeah, well, it's not an edible thing. I'm not saying, and in fact, although John did mention in one of his interviews that it was edible, that a lot of the songs that he wrote were specifically for Julia, his mother. But that there was, and because John says that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or the song Girl off of, uh, off of Rubber Soul were songs about the woman that he needed, the, the woman that he needed to complete that hole in his heart. And Yoko was that woman for him. So when Paul says, let her into your heart, let her under your skin, you have found her, now go and get her. Paul lost his mom, Mary, when he was 14. John lost his mom, Julia, when he was 17. And they were absolutely devastated, as well they should be. And that was their bonding. And those songs, whether it's She Loves You or For Me To You, or Here, There, and Everywhere, or as I mentioned, Girl or Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. These are songs about these ethereal, special women that they just cannot seem to find. And here they are. They find these two women within months of each other, within months of the writing of Hey Jude. Um, And then marry both these women within seven days of each other the next year. It's really mind-numbing. So that, to me, changed my whole perspective on the way the Beatles wrote songs. And when Paul says optimism and positive and peace and love. I I think he's tipping a hat. He's nodding towards his mother, Mary, who by all accounts was just an absolutely wonderful, caring. She was a nurse. She was smart. She was the breadwinner of the family. She was really a paragon, I've said before, of womanhood. She was way ahead of her time. And I think she gave Paul and her his brother, Michael, a real lesson in how women, how powerful women are and how much they mean in the world. So for him to write something like Lady Madonna, I mean, Mary's right in there, you know? So um, those were a couple of things that I learned. Do, but that do you one, see some of this uh, crazy uh, maternal influence on Mike's work with the scaffold? <laughs> I don't even have it. I know that that... That is rhetorical, so I will just leave. I'll let that lie. Beautifully done, my friend. If any of you out there have an answer to that question, uh, email fansontherunpodcast at gmail.com, and I will read the email on the next episode of Fans on the Run. Oh, man, that is very good. By the way, Fans on the Run is an excellent name. Thank you. I didn't come up with it. Do you have Do you have a favorite Beatles song, Beatles album, uh, Paul song? But, you know, do you have... We'll, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get. To all that. right. All right. All right. All right. Don't Actually, let me leave. You know, let's get to that now. Go ahead. Um, there's a segment of the show called the Quickfire Questions, which is you know a rhetorical name because the questions are quick, but the answers are not. Okay, uh, but I don't want to rush you. Did you have any other questions you want to ask me about the book? Because Lord knows I want to talk about the book always. Oh no, I, I have more questions. Oh, okay, okay. So you, you want to do the rapid fire now then? Yeah. Am I screwing up your whole... All right, let's do it. No, there's... Uh, it, all my listeners out there know this show is held together with like tape and goodwill. There is very little structure. All right, then. All let's right, what is... Never mind. I was going to say, what is your favorite Beatles song? 
but I think I think that's. Can I well say as- other than? Can other I than, say other- yes? Okay. Other than right. Hey Jude, uh, I'll say a day in the life. Okay, why a day in the life? It's a masterpiece, um, but that's not why. I just love it because you know I saw George Martin speak at Town Hall in New York City years ago. He, he when he was doing, I want to think it's like 2007 now. It's probably the some anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's. He was running around the country with the original uh, tracks and everything and playing them and discussing. It was fabulous. And he played through the system in the, in the room. And if, if anybody knows town hall is one of the greatest, um, you know, acoustic places on the continent. And like the, you, Alma could, stand, Combo. you could stay, <laughs> you could stand on the stage of that place and whisper like this. And the person in the back row hears it. So he, he's got this thing cranking and he plays sugar plum fairy, sugar plum fairy. Jin, jin, jin. And John plays, you know, the opening chords of day in the life. And, you know, the chill goes right through the brain. I've always loved that song. Anyway, it's sad. It's funny. It's poignant. It's mean spirited. And it's just genius on every level. I mean, Ringo's drumming on that may be the best drumming in a rock song ever. Uh, and so I just love that song. So day in the life. On the flip side of that question, what is your least favorite Beatles song? I've never liked to run for, run for your life. A, because it's talking about killing a woman. So I'm not a big fan of that. Number two, uh, it's ripping off the, uh, I'd rather be, I'd rather see you dead little girl than being with another man, which is an old blues trope that Elvis made fa- famous um, in uh, Let's Play House, I believe, uh, where John got it. So it's not even original. And it's sort of a trite rock and roll poppy song on an album that is loaded with absolutely mind-numbing, groundbreaking music. Yeah. This this weird little ditty of murder uh, closing out Rubber Soul. I know. It doesn't belong. So I'm going to say that. And now, uh, what is your favorite Beatles album? The White Album. Why the white album? It's again. I'm sorry. You know, I I think the role. Uh, you know, you're allowed to use the word masterpiece. Okay, yeah. So, Exile on the Main Street is my favorite Rolling Stones album because I think it does. It's everything the Stones do well. Sign of the Times is my favorite Prince album because I think it's everything that Prince does well. That's my now, favorite Prince album too. It's a fantastic album, and it should be. So, uh, <laughs> so, but but I must say that Blonde on Blonde is not my favorite Dylan album. But uh, you get my point. So yeah. I just think it's a lot more Beatles and the Beatles are great. I would say it's a, it's a very close, uh, it, it just edges out revolver. Like for it, me, in but. terms of tracks, um, you know, the white album has like two times as many songs as any other Beatle album. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah. I, I'm one of the few people who loves revolution nine. So I actually just got that, believe it or not on a 45 a couple days ago what that happened uh some bootleggers in the 90s thought it'd be really funny to have 45s pressed up on like a fake capital swirl label Uh, of revolution nine and wild honey pie (laughs) you're the most abhorrent beatles songs of all time capitalist records oh very good very good yeah i like that beautiful (laughs) (laughs) It's great. And I, I have to say here, just because I'm 
I'm in the mood to start a fight. Um, you mentioned Exile on Main Street is your favorite Stones album. Yes. My favorite Stones album is their Satanic Majesty's Request. Well, that's fine. I thought you were going to say Dirty Work. So you still oh, win. Oh, God, no. I'm not a monster. <laughs> well, I will say that. I will say that Satanic Majesty's Request is not a bad record. That record, like Paul McCartney's Ram, has, has had new life among critics over the last 20, 25 years. Really, uh, two albums that were vilified for some reason. I have no idea why. Uh, I mean, I get it with Satanic Majesty's Request because they're trying to be the Beatles, clearly, but you can see they're sending it up just by the cover. I mean, it's just... That, that's but, where the similarities lie with the cover. And to me, I don't really hear it musically in the well, record. You know, okay, so you got We Love You coming on the heels of... But that wasn't, know, that wasn't on the album. I know, but yeah. it's just... Yeah, it's, and it's too In their much. defense, the Beatles were on... John and Paul were on We Love You. Yeah, they are. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't. The, the Beatles and Stones, uh, you know, the, the rivalry was way overblown, way overblown. They played on each other's records. Obviously, Paul and John wrote their first hit, I Want to Be Your Man. So they were constantly interacting. The rivalry uh, you know, existed exclusively in the mind of Andrew Oldham. Yeah, and also the the record companies, right? Yeah. They, but even the record companies would would hold off releases so that you know they would be able to get both audiences to buy the records to great acclaim and great success. So it worked. But um, I understand you must understand why people were pissed at it then. But yeah. I think over the years people have realized that that's a fun fun record, and it has one of my top ten all time Rolling Stone songs. Uh, She's a rainbow. So yeah. you, if it has that, then it can't be all bad. So. And uh, speaking of albums that not a lot of people like, what is your least favorite Beatle album? I know everybody says Beatles for Sale, but that's the best picture of the Beatles ever taken. So, And I yes. ended up trading something for that years later in the 80s with a guy I was working at Record World. And I remember uh, the main guy there, like the general manager or whatever, came. And we were talking about the Beatles and he said he had two copies of an original EMI of Meet the Beatles and he hate, uh, not Meet the Beatles, the Beatles sale and he hated it. So I said, what are you talking about, man? I love that picture. And he goes, we well, obviously have not heard this record, which I hadn't. And I got it. And, and I, it's not a great album, but that cover just, you know, makes it for me. But so you had seen the cover think, before you heard the record. Correct. Yeah. Just like Toys in the Attic. There's another one. I bought the record just that Aerosmith record because the cover is so damn good. But I love that record now. But um, what was I, 15 at the time? You can forgive me. But I did love that cover. Uh, but it has a lot of covers on it. And that's why people don't like it that much. Um, but now having said that, I guess maybe I guess maybe Help. I'm not a huge fan of Help. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe the American version because it had all the you know, the string parts on it and everything like that. And they stole some songs from Rubber Soul to put on it. It was sort of a mishmash here in America. Uh, and only because it's it's kind of the one left out. I love the first record. I love the second record. I mean, anything after Rubber Soul is magnificent. I don't know where you go for your least favorite Beatle. Where do you go? Okay. So regular listeners will know that there's secret answers to the the album questions. And the, the secret answer for least favorite Beatle album tends to be Let It Be. But I love Let It Be. I know, and you're not one of the people who say that, <laughs> then. 
<laughs> no, it's so good. I don't know where people, that's another one. It's like, why don't people, people didn't like Let It Be at the time because it was the death of the Beatles and they hated the movie. And, and, and Paul complained forever about what, and rightfully so, what Phil Spector did. But I have to say, when I got naked years later, I missed the screen arrangements. I got naked. The the the, the oh, uh, let it be the naked. C- oh, okay, wise guy. But yes, I get naked every day. I shower, so that's not shocking for anyone involved. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so yes, when I got the let it be naked, I thought, well, where's this cool string arrangement and um, in uh, long and winding road? I missed it. I, I'm not one of those people who hate the, and I'm not a big Phil Spector fan. It's one of the reasons why I cannot stand um, all things must pass. It's just way, way too much saturated in crazy Phil Spectorisms, but I don't believe "Let It Be" falls in that category. And of course, the songs are fantastic. And I hope the "Get Back" thing brought people back to that album with a new set of ears. Myself. And now I think I'll I'll even extend it to McCartney. What's your favorite McCartney record? Ram. Care to elaborate? Uh, head and shoulders above. It's a It's as good as any Beatle album in my estimation. Every song on that album is great. Backseat of My Car might be one of the greatest things that any Beatle wrote after the breakup. Um, it's playful. It's produced great. Linda is singing her butt off in it. Paul is too. Paul's having fun. He's getting deep. He's got some poppy stuff on there. He's got rock stuff on there. And everyone hated it. And I was one of the few people in the 80s who loved it. And I love the fact that I was. And now I hate the fact that everybody else has come to Jesus on it because I don't have my special little badge for Ram. But yeah, Ram has always been my favorite Paul McCartney album. Yeah. Yours? Um, I think I'd ha- also have to say Ram. So good. And look at you. You're a young man. It's a whole new generation. Ram fans. Yeah. Love it. We're, we're, we're going to take over the world. Yeah, you should. Yeah, it's a better world. A Ram world is a way yeah. better world. We'll all be eating Monkberry Moon delight. Indeed. <laughs> um, I'll I'll turn things over to you now in case. Uh, That's know, it. That's you... the last of the rapid fire questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I survived. I, I turn things over to you. If there's okay. anything you haven't mentioned that you would like to, or like the listeners out there to know. Um, what may that be? Well, first of all, this has been a delight. I just met you, and I feel like you and I have been pals for some time. We have a good r- rapport going here, I think. Thank you. We should take this on the road. Yeah, we um, should. Yeah, the comedy stylings of James and Ethan. I put myself first there, just so you yeah. know. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that. Age before beauty, my friend. Uh, oh. No, just to please buy the book, enjoy it. Um. Let me know what you think. You could always reach me at jc at jamescampion.com. In fact, you could buy the book at, uh, on jamescampion.com. When we're taping this, the book's not out until June 1, everywhere. But the only place you can get it is through jamescampion.com or directly from the publisher currently. I will sign the book to you and mail it to you free if you live in the continental USA, which does not include you, Ethan. I apologize. I'm, heart- I'm heartbroken. I'll have the publisher send you a, a, a version and hopefully we'll meet. And when we do, I will sign a few of them. Thank you. Um, I, I got an e-version. Yes. Well, everybody did because the, I just got the book like last week. So uh, just by the way, uh, you and I are taping this on Zoom and I know no one can see this yes. in podcast land. So that's what it looks like now. Uh, very excited for it. Uh, but it's available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places. By, by uh, the time the show is out, 
uh, it may already be available. Right. And please go to, if you live in Toronto, visit all the local record and book, bookstores there. I was there with Counting Crows a couple of years ago on one of their tours because I, I'm working on a book with their singer, Adam Duritz, who is one of the voices in my book. Uh, and I went on tour with them for a month or a couple of weeks. And uh, Toronto was one of the stops. I had never been to your wonderful city and it was excellent. And I hit every bookstore and every record store on foot myself. Jesus, yes. man. Yes, and, I did. But how, how, does, uh, how does Toronto stack up? Right up there. Right I, up there. I think Toronto is home to, is quite possibly like of all the big cities in you know, North America, Toronto may have the best record store scene because there's so many top, you know, high class stores. So good. So good. I, I, yeah. I mean, I had a blast. So um, yeah, you can find the book on jamescampion.com, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere. Um, you know, follow me in the usual places on Twitter. I'm at fear, no art and uh, at James Campion um, on Instagram. We do have a Facebook page. I implore all your listeners to go on a Facebook page, uh, the Hey Jude book page. I am posting um, cool little content on there and updates of where I'm going to be on book tour, on my book tour, and also all these other podcasts that I'm doing and radio shows and other things. And, and of course, this lovely podcast, which I have enjoyed immensely, Ethan. I really have. Oh, shucks. Yes. Take that and enjoy the days. Let it, let it linger in your mind. My approbation. So, so important to you, I'm sure. Yeah, After what he said. 50 minutes. <laughs> After knowing me for 50 minutes now. Yeah, 50 <laughs> minutes is, is, to some people, it's a lifetime. <laughs> for you, it's 50 minutes. Is this I, podcast? Go ahead. Say, you're gonna say I, I've lost all track of time. <laughs> Have you? Uh, I, so this podcast is about the Beatles? It's or about is it Beatles about fans. Oh, it's about Beatles fans. So I am I considered a Beatles fan? Did I pass muster? You, you did. You're okay. in good company. Thank you. I, that's why I enjoy doing these to yeah. talk to the people I think would be most interested in this book. Did, now, before I can't let you end this podcast, I don't know if you're going to start off with a fancy introduction or this is it. I'm seeing what it is. But do you have any commentary you would like to make? On my book, I would love to know, sitting here right now, looking at you on Zoom, what did you, did you like it? Did I, you? I did. And I, I, I'm not a man. I'm not good at articulating my thoughts. So that's why I have an interview show where I have people articulate their thoughts. Um, but I, I liked it. I, I really did. Did you, like did a, you not think, a, a moment was crazy? That, that stood out kind of sure. when I was I was rereading it last night uh, with the Paul and Cynthia, you know, Paul getting on one knee saying, let's get married. Yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, and yeah. I, I can't believe it. it. It's become sort of over the years, it's become a little bit of a, you know, uh controversy like that's actually what was happening i mean look you have to remember something about paul not that not to mention he's such a showman in every way and you know an empathetic figure and always trying to make people feel cheeky and fun and happy when he's around them but he did go out there to comfort cynthia and julian and he did sing hey jules don't make it bad but you know he met cynthia 
right around the time John did. I mean, I think yeah. he knew John for maybe a week or two, and then John started dating her. So as far as Paul was concerned, his entire life began with John and not too far afterwards, Cynthia. So the two closest people to John Winston Lennon would be Cynthia Powell and James Paul McCartney. So that's a sweet, sweet moment, I think. Him getting on a knee, giving her a rose and saying, how about it, Sin? How about me and you getting married? The poor woman was at her absolute nadir. You know, and, and the Beatles and their whole entourage were ignoring her because no one would ever cross John except Paul, his buddy, his brother. I don't care what John thinks. I'm going to drive out there and I'm going to comfort these people. He, he, he was that. a mensch for that. He was. He was. And as Rob Sheffield says in my book, what 26-year-old rock, forget 26, what 36, 46, 56-year-old rock star is getting in their car and driving an hour out to go comfort the ex-wife, the soon-to-be ex-wife of their songwriting partner? The answer to that is zero. There's zero more than Paul McCartney. So, and it's all in this wonderful song called Hey Jude, and I tried to give- It's also all in this wonderful book called Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Ethan. That was Th very sweet. Thank you. Thank you for, for taking the time to come out on the show. I, I am appreciate it. I love doing these in the afternoon because I've been doing all these at night. Mm -hmm. I think I'm at my grandest when the, when the bells hit 12. So I thank you for I, I'm glad that. that you are at peak operating efficiency at, at 12. See, I, I just, I just finished a college semester and so uh, I had to set like six alarms to be awake. Well, listen, one of the one of the I'm not going to say what I took to be as energetic as I okay. am now. Well, you can't give away your secrets. Come on. No, I can't. Uh, nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. Yeah. But I, I will say that one of one of my one of the voices in my book said that. What did he say? I had a point I was going to make and now I can't remember. It was so pithy, but I, I've got nothing now. Oh, I like it's a perfect pithy. way to end it. It's a, it's a perfect way to end this with me being in some sort of confused netherworld. Oh, I remembered. So, um, and it was confused netherworld that got me back there. I think I forget it was might have been Howard Soons or Peter Ames Carlin, two of the Paul McCartney biographers that I interviewed for the book, that said that Paul was best when he worked in the subconscious. So perhaps that's what you're doing today, Ethan. You're working in the subconscious. I may steal that and uh, use it as the tagline of the show. Please. You know, just... fans on the run, the subconscious Beatles podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we work under the radar. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. You're very good at this. You're, oh, you're a young oh, thank man. You. And, uh, and it's great to see a, a new, younger audience appreciating my writing and, uh, and the writing about... She's a 50-something old book. I mean, song. It's crazy, right? This song is, what the hell year is this? It's 54 years old, this song? Is that right? I, Holy you're shit. asking the wrong person. I don't know what day it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still Friday. All right, well, Ethan, thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And to all of the listeners out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. <laughs> Peace. Hands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.